Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukalu. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Dr. Jan Doolittle-Wilson joins me to cover Danny's second POV chapter in A Clash of Kings. Jan, of course, is a professor at the University of Tulsa and the author of Becoming Disabled, Forging a Disability View of the World. If you'd like to send me feedback, book at baldmove.com. I do read all those emails. I try to reply to as many as I can. And, of course, check out my other podcasts, Double Dragon and Properly Howard. I host both of those with my good friend, stand-up comic, Steve Osborne. All right, without further ado, here is Dr. Jan Doolittle Wilson. So, what is your, um, what's your online class? I'm doing Monsters in America. Ah, that's fun. Yeah, it's kind of my go-to summer class because it's uh-huh. all online, which is nice. Um, but yeah, just all of the the horror greats um, kind of start in the 19th century, um, mm-hmm. talking about you know the development of gothic horror, and then we move pretty quickly into the 20th century with the golden age of horror movies, and so we do a lot of you know Frankenstein and the Wolfman and mm-hmm. Dracula, and then we move pretty quickly to Cold War monsters. So a lot of aliens and pod people, and you know fears of nuclear invasion. Mm. Uh, we just finished serial killers this week, and so Ooh. we did all of the from Psycho <laughs> to the slashers, and uh-huh. um, so this next week we're doing zombies, and that's where we end. Okay, all right. Focused on film or literature or both? Uh, both. A little heavier toward the film side. Um, but yeah, we do. In fact, we read some Lovecraft in the beginning. Mm. Um, a lot of short stories. Uh, this past week, they read a lot of Stephen King. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, and television as well. We do some Stranger Things and you know things like that. Uh, oh, Twilight Zone. Right up my alley. Love oh it. yeah, it's a fun class, and you know horror is just a, such a great way to look at changing fears and anxieties mm-hmm. um, in American culture over time. So it's, and I've always loved horror since I was in Grimm's Fairy Tales when I was a little kid, probably really? way sooner than I should have read them. Um, uh-huh. So yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I've just gotten into horror sort of later in my life i i never was i i, I never enjoyed horror really and, and then during the pandemic i feel like i guess it was sort of like i feel like i've watched all the great movies yeah yeah <laughs> so then i started branching out into foreign films that i hadn't seen before and then there were just great american classic horror movies that i'd never seen Oh, yeah. So I kind of, you know, about 2020, I, I started giving it a try. Um, and I've I've enjoyed a, a lot of, I mean, not every, all of them, but I've enjoyed 
Like I can see why. Oh, I can see why this movie was popular at the time. Yeah. Um, it's fun because nobody until recently, no one in my family would watch horror stuff with me. Nathan mm. hates it. Zoe's not really into it. So Connor is 14 now and mm. he's just on the cusp of that. Well, we can start introducing some things, maybe not the whole catalog, mm-hmm. um, but he has been really anxious to start watching some things. So we've kind of been on this horror kick so far this summer. So he's seen things like the shining and oh, yeah. you know, things I always thought he was too young for before. Um, We've watched a couple of things where I thought maybe crossed the line a little bit, but he's handled it really well. Um, mm-hmm. I was kind of introduced to horror. Just it was a way for me to work through some fears that I had. And my dad had a great idea, had a lot of anxiety. And he said, let's just lean into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. he brought home Grimm's fairy tales and we read these just graphic stories mm-hmm. and it made me feel better. Um, it kind of took away some of the fear, you know, of the the kind of unknown of the monster under the bed. Mm-hmm. And I got hooked. Um, so I've just been a, a huge fan ever since then. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Shout out to my dad. Happy Father's Day tomorrow. And happy Father's Day to you, Anthony. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, And I appreciate you jumping. Like, let me just say there are chapters. I'm about to pay you a compliment. I hope Uh. it doesn't embarrass you. But (laughs) there are chapters that are really easy to assign. And then there are chapters like this one. And when you get a chapter where you kind of feel like, did anything really happen in this chapter? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of important to have someone with a literary eye because otherwise it's like what are you what are you going to talk about um, yeah yeah so anyway i there's a I lot mean, going on here i i'm anxious to to get into it with you yeah i'm i'm really happy to have you um i mean in addition to the fact that i i enjoy talking with you uh a chapter like this makes someone with a literary sensibility almost necessary to right. keep this podcast going and so I remain very grateful. Well, thank you. Um, I always enjoy doing this with you. So, and I mean, your background too. I kept thinking of so many, all of the religious imagery, mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, I can't wait to ask Anthony his opinion of this. So, uh, it's yeah, right it's, back at it, you. I mean, it's it, it's so much fun to do this. Yeah. Uh, well, let me jump into the the synopsis here. Okay. Danny enters Karth to a great welcome and promises from Zaro, Zoan, Doxos, and Pratt Pri. Did I say that right? You did. It's a lot of alliteration there. Mm, okay. But Quaith warns Danny that the leaders of Karth lust after her dragons. Jor also warns Danny, but Danny sees no immediate danger. Even so, she commands her blood riders to scout the city and guard her wing of the palace. Then she commands Jorah to go to the nearest port for news of Westeros. When he returns, a sailor from the Summer Isles tells her that Robert Baratheon is dead. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. So, Jan, what do you want to talk about? Uh, so much here. Um, when you told me we were doing this chapter, my first thought was, ah, oh, the Karth years. <laughs> yeah. The Karth episode, which I know is not a fan favorite. Um, but, you know, there is so much going on here in such a necessary stage for Danny mm-hmm. that I don't think it it gets enough credit um, in, in kind of our hero's journey. Um I thought maybe we'd start with talking about who has the right to claim a culture. This seems like a a really big theme of not just this chapter, but really Danny's arc throughout this book. Um, Is it, you know, for example, blood or birthright? Is it lived experience? Mm -hmm. You know, even if you don't share that kind of blood connection or is it, respect and effort and study and you know self-education and really kind of immersing yourself into the culture of a people that is you know unfamiliar to you and then I also started thinking about who gets to decide you know what authentic culture is and who has a right to claim it Mm -hmm. and this continues to resonate I think in our culture today you know we keep asking these questions about what is authentic culture who can claim it Mm -hmm. who has a right to it Um, I started thinking in terms of a disability studies framework I started thinking about things like you know this is a big debate within the community Um, what is disability who is disabled Um, is it somebody who 
you know, kind of fits the, the federal guidelines? Is it someone who has a visible physical disability? What about invisible disability? Um, and, you know, what about things like, you know, CODAs, children of deaf adults, many of whom claim a capital D deaf mm -hmm. identity because they have grown up completely immersed within, mm -hmm. you know, capital D, capital D deaf community and that mm -hmm. culture to the point where they know the language. They have family members. Um, I was also kind of strangely reminded, and this might seem like a tangent, but I, I hope it's it's relevant to our discussion. I was thinking about when I was in eighth grade and my father got a call one evening and it was from a person whom we had never talked to or heard of. And they said, I'm sorry to tell you, your father has died. My father's parents divorced when he was just a year old. Oh. And so he was raised by his mother, never knew his father, knew of him, mm -hmm. got a card here and there over the years, but never really knew anything about him. Mm -hmm. And so they called and said, your father has died. Um, the funeral is on this day. We'd like you to come. We found out that he lived just about less than four hours away in Kentucky. Hmm. And so we drove out there for the funeral. Uh, my family now, my two sisters and my parents. And it was the strangest thing, Anthony. We entered this family, this huge extended family that we didn't even know existed, mm. who had kind of their own customs and background and history and, you know, way of speaking. A lot of them had um, indigenous connections. Um, one of them was my father's grandfather, his actual father's father. We didn't even know he existed. And what was so strange about that is not only realizing, gosh, these people look like us. <laughs> they look yeah. like my dad. Yeah. They have the same mannerisms as my father. <laughs> um, they insisted that we sit on the front row at the funeral. We were in the car right behind the hearse. And we were the largest beneficiaries of the will. And we had not even known that this world existed. Huh. And there were some members of the family who so in a way strangers, <laughs> strangers that but, we had a very intimate blood connection to. Yeah, biological connection. That's but that's had never known. Huh. And I started thinking about that when I thought about Danny because you know she knows that she has this blood heritage. She knows she has this family heritage. She's been told since the moment she had cog you know cognizant thought. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a Targaryen. This is your this is your lineage. She's heard all of these stories about Westeros, but yet she's never been there. Mm -hmm. She really doesn't know what it is to be a Targaryen. Uh, there's a, a point in a later chapter where she's you know thinking about her dragons, and she she thinks to herself, "I don't even know how to train a dragon. Mm -hmm. I have these dragons, but I don't know what to do with them because there's nobody to show me." And so on the one hand, she keeps claiming this birthright. I'm the rightful queen. I'm the rightful mm -hmm. um, person to sit on the Iron Throne. But yet she has no idea what that means. She doesn't know the people. She doesn't know their customs. Jorah keeps trying to tell her, they're not going to welcome you with open arms simply mm -hmm. because you carry the family name. They won't care. Uh, you will be a stranger to them. And so, so much of her journey, and I think this is why, you know, Karth is, is such an important passage for her. She is literally in the wilderness, right? She's in the desert mm -hmm. where she's had this amazing kind of Messiah moment in the last book. Um, she has performed this miracle. The Dothraki who have stuck with her 
are extremely loyal to her. Yeah. And yet she starts out this book completely not knowing what to do with that. Where do we go next? What is my next step? How in the world do I get to Westeros? How do I become this ruler that I feel I'm destined to be? And she doesn't have any clue. Um, she, the closest she has to a culture is the Dothraki at this point. Um, you know, she's probably right. more immersed in their culture than she even was in her time in, you know, Pentos and, and living in Essos. Yeah. No, I think that there's a lot here. I, let's start with your first question. Who has the right to claim a culture? And I, I really like the, the question, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could maybe reframe it or say it in different words. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. What do you mean um, by what do you mean by claim? I guess. Yeah. Who? I guess who can claim an identity? Right. We talk so much about identity. Uh huh. And so you know, again, using my analogy of the disability community, um, can you claim a disabled identity if you don't kind of fit what is typically associated with right. disability. Another yeah. example that I thought of is self-diagnosis has become pretty prominent. And so, you know, again, this is somewhat controversial, but there are so many gatekeepers <laughs> within yeah. the medical community. It's expensive to find a therapist. It's expensive to get a diagnosis, uh, to, to jump through all mm -hmm. of those hoops that you need to, even if you know for yourself um, that you seem to fit these parameters. It's really, really hard mm -hmm. to have the medical gatekeepers kind of acknowledge that. Um, so self-diagnosis has kind of become a thing. And it's, it's somewhat controversial um, because, you know, it's the old line from The Incredibles. <laughs> if everyone is this identity, no one is. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. But then who gets to decide what those parameters are? Yeah. Who gets to decide these are the lines that we draw? Yeah, the and the other interesting thing about the question is the word culture. It's like just recently I covered a Theon chapter. It's like their culture to raid and it's their culture to keep slaves and it's 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 a it's an old old culture, right? It goes right. back you know, even before the first men according to them. So that there's a lot of really unsavory things that are attached to this culture. And I couldn't help but think, you know, be thinking of like Confederate South mm. when yeah. I was reading that. Like who who has a right to claim that this is hey, this is my culture. You you can't judge as an outsider, you can't judge my culture. Right. Um we hear a lot of that today. This is simply yeah. acknowledging my cultural heritage. Right, right. Um, and Theon's a good example of that too, right? Someone who was raised completely outside mm -hmm. of that, you know, familial uh, culture, and then mm -hmm. kind of tries to re-enter it, thinking that he will be welcomed with open arms. They will throw right. flowers at his feet, and what a rude awakening that is for Theon. So here, Danny is. She's entering what looks to be a, a very ancient culture sort of claiming Westeros as her culture, right? She's, you know, she, she sort of presents herself as the rightful queen of the Iron Throne. Yes. Like you, like you say, you know, she's never even been to Westeros in her waking memory. Um, and 
yet she i guess yeah i guess she is claiming a culture that that is really foreign to her right and she's dressed like a dothraki She's dressed like a Dothraki. She feels <laughs> awkward about that. Right. She's right? finally kind of seen Dothraki culture the way maybe she used to see it uh-huh. when she was first presented with it, which uh-huh. I thought was interesting. Um, her first remark as they're going through the streets of, of Karth is, wow, uh, we must seem like savages to them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It, it's always interesting to me to see what, how Danny perceives people like Ned Stark, you know, mm-hmm. someone that she she's never met. She's only heard propaganda, and it's not just propaganda. It's like her older brother's propaganda. Who yes, is not the most trustworthy person <laughs> in the world. His cold heart, she describes. Yeah, you know, right? His 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 what? His dark eyes and his cold heart, <laughs> frozen heart. And um, Robert is always the usurper. He's the yes, and you know, Jorah has met this man. He's he's like, <laughs> yeah, there's no way he was a traitor. The long summer will come again before that guy besmirches his honor. And she's like, how how honorable could he be? He, he was right. a traitor to his rightful king. And it's just, there's so much naivety to her. And yet she's kind of right when she says, I'm not a girl anymore. Like, I right. think of all the things that I've, gone through and i've survived and she's got every reason to believe that the gods are on her side there's a lot with faith in this chapter uh so much going back to an earlier point you made um and we can circle back to this certainly i think it's the main theme right this idea that she does keep saying i'm not a girl she says this continuously i'm no longer a girl i'm no longer a girl mm-hmm. and that's true but she's not quite sorry britney spears she's not quite a woman yet mm. either right <laughs> And so she's really in that that adolescence where she's just trying to figure out who she is. And there are so many painful, much like adolescence is painful, but there are so many just painful outward signs that she is really grappling. Again, I know this isn't a later chapter, but the part where I just winced is when she receives the crown as a gift and she's running around Garth with this crown on her head, mm-hmm. which just really makes her look foolish. And the sad part is she knows it makes her look foolish. You know, right. she says, I am a beggar king. Yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah. have this crown on my head. It doesn't make me a queen. Even Jorah doesn't think I'm a queen. Even he doesn't quite accept me in this mm-hmm. role. So she, at least she has the self-awareness, something that Viserys never did. She has the self-awareness to know that she's foolish, that she's naive, that she has a lot of figuring out to do, but she's also so smart in the way that she learns, the way that she kind of observes. She tries to apply the same rules, I think, in Karth that she did with the Dothraki, which is Mm -hmm. if I dress the part and try to learn the language, um, and by language, of course, you know, the patterns and, and what to say. And, you know, really show to them that I'm trying to be part of their culture. I will be more accepted and get what I want. Now, it doesn't quite work out that way in Karth. Um, but she's really smart about how she goes about trying to be part of this culture that is so very foreign to her. And what a strange culture it is in Karth. And you mentioned uh, something that I thought was really important. Karth is so important for her development. In a lot of ways, the way that I was thinking that it was important was 
I feel like she's learning politics for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess she's she's had some exposure to a very sort of ancient, hyper-masculine, misogynistic culture. Yeah. And th- 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 there are political lessons to be learned. If you can't ride, you can't lead. I mean, th- these are some very basic things to learn. But now everything's more subtle. Right. Yes. Everything's like, we are going to give you the best room of the castle. <laughs> We're going to treat you like like a queen. We're going to promise you the world. And it's kind of up to her to see through it. Right. And decide, okay, but that part, like even Quaith in this chapter, it's like she might be giving you good advice, but that doesn't mean you can trust her. Right. And oh, yeah. I, I really do feel like you take this person and you put them in this one extreme situation, you know, trying to learn Dothraki culture, you're going to get an entirely different set of problems if you take the same person and put them in an ancient, ancient political world where you've got all kinds of people vying for power and using all kinds of different subtle tools at their disposal to get what they want out of her. And I think you're so right, Anthony, when you say it's more subtle. And, you know, certainly there's just, you know, the old favorites, greed and lust and, you know, those Mm -hmm. things going on. And, but it's also, do you also get the impression that one reason why Karth is harder to navigate is they just seem like bored nobles who are looking for the next amusing (laughs) pet. You know, she even mentions that, but they're just, they're already rich. Mm -hmm. Um, They already have everything provided for them. So there's really not a whole lot she can bargain with. And she starts to learn that, you know, when she first arrives, she tells Jorah, of course, they're welcoming me. I've got my dragons. They know Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, the rightful heir. Oh, you know, Doxos, uh, thinks I'm beautiful, you know, of course they're going to do these things. And, you know, Jorah gives her that early warning, as does Quaith. <laughs> Jen, no, look beneath the surface. This all looks yeah. great and glittery, but there's something rotten at the core. And she does figure that out, I think, especially when she goes before the council and tries to argue for the ships. And But I, I look the part. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And yet nothing I do is tempting you people. <laughs> Right. All of those traditional tools don't work. It makes her much smarter when she leaves. A lot it, more savvy. Yes. And I think that there's something about the naivete that goes with that. But the, there's also this... She's had the supernatural event in her life. Yes. And the, and that convinced her... Like, her, her dreams literally came true. And... Uh, she's got every reason to believe that the comet from the heavens are put there by the gods to save her people and lead her to Karth. So she's got all of these faith reasons to think that this is going to be a stepping stone on my way back to the Iron Throne. Yes. And it's sort of a rude awakening what happens to her. And, you know, it, it is kind of a stepping stone because of her character development, but it doesn't happen the way that she thinks it's going to happen. Right. Right. It's a theme that Martin likes to play with. It's like, yes, magic was involved. Um, does that justify faith? Right. And for Danny, you know, she kind of has to learn to trust herself alone 
I think that the, that's kind of the, the lesson over and over and over again. Yeah. Even even in this chapter, she's like, I don't trust Quaith. She she reminds me of Miri Mazdur, you know. Right. What a learning experience that was. Yeah, remember um, treachery, she says. Yes. And questioning motives much more than she would have before. Mm-hmm. But I, I think you're right about the idea that, you know, Danny has been pretty heavily criticized for her messiah complex and her hubris, but she literally just hatched three dragons. (laughs) (laughs) She stepped out of a fire. Mm -hmm. Of course she will have this idea of her own importance. And, but, but along with that, you know, she's, I, I think she is separated from other characters who have hubris and who have a much more, you know, kind of inflated sense of their own importance. Um, in that she can back it up. Mm-hmm. She has gone through the trials. She has suffered the hardships. She has done the hard work. Um, she spent years learning about, you know, the Thraki culture, for example. Um, she can back that up with tons of effort on her part. <clears throat> so it's not as if she lived this life of luxury, then suddenly she birthed mm-hmm. dragons and she thinks, great, let's go to Westeros. Um, so yes, I, I think that coming in and she even says this to Jorah I may only be 15 or 14 but look at what I've accomplished and she's right about that she is no longer a girl yeah and so you know I wanted to ask you where you put Danny in kind of this larger pantheon of chosen one tropes does George kind of subvert expectations mm-hmm. um how does she what does she think about her own destiny is that why she is pursuing the iron throne mm-hmm. everyone around her keeps saying why are you doing this take the money and run be comfortable you could stay here in Carth. you could do this or that mm-hmm. why is it against all of these impossible odds are you running around trying to find ships and build an army and mm-hmm. why are you doing it and it seems at this stage in her journey her only answer is it's my right mm-hmm. I think George likes the idea of history repeating itself mm-hmm. and that I'm reluctant to say it, but I almost think that he has this idea that, you know, a leopard doesn't change his spots. Mm-hmm. And so Targaryens are going to do what Targaryens are going to do. You know, the, the, the cold, the cold austere Starks are always going to be, you know, always, always going to be in a particular way. Yeah. And Dorne is always going to be a bit separatist. And so those characters, whether it's this generation or that, are usually going to play the same role in these things. Make the same mistakes. Make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if that's real. I don't know if that's true. Um, but I mean, even stereotypes are based on some either a kernel of truth that's been distorted or a kernel of truth that has merit. Um, and so I think that she's the last Targaryen. Mm-hmm. And so she you know, she says, I'm not my brother, meaning I'm not Viserys. And then Jorah says something like, yeah, I always, uh, you know, it could be that you're more like your brother Rhaegal. Um and so you almost get that sense that, like, there's a bit of duality to Targaryens, but at the end of the day, Targaryens are destined, there's your word, <laughs> to conquer and rule from King's Landing. And so she's the last one, so now it's up to her to do it. 
And, yeah, and going back, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I just think that if she doesn't have that narrative, who is she? Yeah. What is she? Yeah. Her entire identity is wrapped up in that. Um, going back to your point about people don't really change, right? And that we have this kind of, you know, cyclical. Yeah, and effect. I and I th- I mean that collectively. I, I, yeah. I think it's it's I think it's necessarily. I don't know if it's George's subverting it or playing with it or whatever, but it is a little bit like certain families, certain clans always do and think the same things. You know, I know that a lot of this is, you know, the uh, the advantage of hindsight. Um, we don't know exactly how the book version will end, um, if it'll be the same as what happens in the show, but really not a whole lot has changed at the end of the show version, right? Mm. I mean, the system is still pretty much in place. Um, but I was thinking about what you were saying in terms of um, kind of history repeating. And I was real, I put about three asterisks by this passage on 321 um, from this chapter, my page 321, where she is thinking about the kind of leader she wants to be, which again, I think shows a lot of good um, kind of foresight on her part. Mm. She's not just thinking about how will I get ships and conquer. She knows that will have to happen, but she's also thinking about what happens next, which a lot of leaders don't. They just think about how do I get to the power? And so she's thinking about, okay, I don't want to be feared. I want people to love me. Um, I want them yeah. to smile when I go past. <laughs> right, yeah. And this line where I wrote, hmm, in my margin, um, she doesn't want to be like the Dothraki, where she just plunders and, and creates terror. Mm-hmm. Danny had no wish to reduce Keen's Landing to a blackened ruin yeah. <laughs> full of unquiet ghosts. And I thought, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that is George kind of raving, waving a red flag. Um, but again, knowing what we know, what happens ultimately to Danny in the show version, mm-hmm. it's quite a remarkable thing that that occurs here in, you know, book two, so early in the narrative. Yeah, both themes, both themes. Mm-hmm. The question is, I, do I want to rule by fear or love? That goes into the show, right? And then the question is, how will I, how will I conquer? Yes. Uh, that's, that's also in this chapter. And so she, you know, she is determined she will be a different kind of ruler. Yeah. Um, look at what she does in Essos. Um, she tries to upend longstanding systems and traditions. She even does that within the Dothraki um, to some some really horrible consequences on the one hand. But she does have this great ideal of I will not be a traditional kind of ruler. Mm-hmm. Um, I will be for the people. I want to be loved. I want to be adored. Um, I want to be the people's champion. And so she does start out that way. Um, So it's quite interesting that, again, she is already sort of thinking about not only the kind of ruler she wants to be, but how she will be different. And if the books do follow the trajectory of the show, how tragic it is that she kind of ends up largely in the same place, maybe even worse um, than Keen Aries. Mm -hmm who threatened to burn the entire city, but is stopped by Jamie, of course. Yeah. All right. So I, I noted, and I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this, but I think that a lot of people who, a lot of people have seen Danny's character sort of hinge on her hatred for the institution of slavery. Mm-hmm. And I think that is kind of a big part of what she becomes in this chapter. I will note that Karth has slaves and, yes, and they I are serving her. 
and there's no commentary. Right. Right. There's so I, I mean, and it could be. Look, you just came out of the <laughs> near death and and uh, starvation in the red waste. Uh, let me take a bath before I <laughs> do anything else, right? So yes. I, I totally get that. But I will note that it's like, hmm, no yeah. commentary on the slavery in Carth, huh? We're not quite there yet. Um, you know, you and I talked about this in an earlier pod. She was also kind of willing to compromise with that system if that got her to Westeros. Yeah. And right. so, you know, when she's still fully part of the Dothraki, this idea that, well, I don't like what's happening. I don't like the system, but if it gets me to the end goal. Mm -hmm. And I know that's true for any ruler. You know, you have to make compromises and think about the ways in which you will give up some of your principles for this idea of, you know, greater good, which is also a longstanding literary trope. But you're right. It almost kind of slips past unless you're really looking for it. The idea of, oh yeah, and the slaves came in and tended to her. (laughs) Mm. Wow. Um, you know, hmm. this is something that you took such a principled stand on uh, just a little while ago. So you're <laughs> right. I think, again, Karth is this middle ground where she very much is, to use a you know biblical analogy, wandering in the wilderness, wandering in the desert. And it really is her time to figure out, let's reset. Hmm. Um, I know I'm the mother of dragons. I'm not yet the breaker of chains. Um, who do I want to be? Where do I want to go? Do I want to chase this this destiny or do i maybe want to stay in karth and lie back on my silken pillows and you know be fed these luxurious fruits and and have people call her uh, you know queen and and yes which they do it's all she right now she has all the trappings of royalty right she yes the question does she really have any power not sure but man she has all the trappings of it yes she could be comfortable there, at least she thinks, until Quaith comes along and says, don't be deceived. If you don't leave now, you'll never get out and it won't be a happy ending for you. Um, mm-hmm. So she does learn that there is something pretty rotten at the core. Um, this idea of, it, again, it looks great on the surface, but underneath, um, you know, Jorah says day one when they walk through the gates, um, you know, sometimes the shiny, I am paraphrasing badly, but sometimes the shiniest objects are those that turn to dust. Yeah. And I think that's certainly true of Karth. You know, you've got this almost kind of um, culture, civilization, city, just kind of teeming with this opulence. Um, Everything looks kind of strange and and unfamiliar, but gleaming. Um, But very quickly, she comes to realize that the people there are pretty shallow, that they really just... do you remember the, the scene of the nobles who are sitting on thrones and look completely bored? Yeah. They really have no interest in anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, am I saying his name correctly? Doxo. So you, yeah. I think you pronounce it a little differently, but um, he is one of the most shallow characters we've encountered. Um, he's throwing out all of these flatteries yeah. and all of these pretty things that he is saying to her. And yet he's really not interested in anything. Um, one gets the impression that he... Yeah, he wants her dragons, but eh, probably not to really do much with them, but just to have another thing to collect. Yeah, um, yeah, it's this is sort of the most interesting things that that's happened there in a while. It feels like right. She is the new toy, and now we get to play our game. We get to play. You know, it's sort of my my old adversaries in this ancient city. Uh, there's a new shiny object on the table. Let's play our game to see who can, you know, get the dragons or something. 
Um, and they almost kind of display her. Yeah. And I know that she does get, you know, the gifts that she sells then to try to get the ships, but they kind of just prop her up and put her on display and say, come and see this wonderful exotic thing that we have acquired. Um, you mm-hmm. know, come to Carth. It's almost like a, a carnival show, you know, come to Carth and see this exotic thing that we find both attractive, but yet kind of um, almost, you know, I'm trying to say, what's the word? Um both attractive, but also sort of creepy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you get that impression for those who come to see Danny that she is kind of just this this object. She's not really a person, even though she has this crown on her head. Okay, we're talking. They about, don't really take her seriously. Talking about Doxus being superficial, and really the whole city. Yeah, maybe so. All right, I have a very superficial question for you. Okay. Um, here's a line. Uh, Zaro was a languid, elegant man with a bald head. <laughs> languid is a great <laughs> description. <laughs> <laughs> with a bald head and a great beak of a nose crusted with rubies, opals, and flakes of jade. His nose is crusted? <laughs> like, I, I had to read that four or five times. I was thinking... Does he is he wearing a mask? Is it a fake nose? Is yeah. does he have piercings? How am I supposed to imagine this? I know it, it's strange, isn't it? I I kind of took that to mean just crusted with like the um kind of the jewel dust, right? Or or whatever he has in his nose. He's got a that... sparkly nose with jade in it. <laughs> is it like in? Internal? Is it all external? How do they stay yeah. on his nose? Yes. Is it piercings? And again, it just shows this ostentatiousness, right? This idea that I'm going to display my um, my wealth. I'm going to uh-huh. display kind of my importance by literally putting jewels in my nose. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm not sure how to imagine this, but I, I guess piercings are something. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It says crusted. So... Uh, Crusted. Uh, it's not honestly. a very uh, attractive image, is it? <laughs> no, I guess not. <laughs> and uh, also, you know, it's interesting to me. There's sort of a gender fluid feel to the men. I think, in particular, um, in the city, silk skirts. They express emotions in a way that uh-huh. we would more associate with the feminine side. Um, the crying, <laughs> mm-hmm. which very emotive. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And then there's the hint, of course, that Doxos is gay. Um, oh, I missed it. Yeah, I, I can't. Re- I don't think it's in this chapter, but there's a hint in one of the later chapters where, you know, Danny has adopted the dress uh, of the women of the city mm-hmm. uh, where she has one breast exposed. Mm-hmm. And she says Jora couldn't take his eyes off of her breast (laughs) that, you know, every kind of Dothraki or or man she encountered from her own people, they clearly were very much aware uh, that she was, you know, had Mm -hmm. one side exposed, but she said Doxos never once looked at her. Um, And then there's this suggestion that all of the servants in his home were young men. Oh, I mean, I totally missed that. So it's not stated overtly, but there is something about a commentary somehow, I think, on how, and I'm not quite sure what conclusions to draw about this, but there is some kind of fluidity there with gender, which also makes the city just seem unfamiliar. So when you're thinking about men with jewels in their nose compared to the Dothraki, right, Uh who have their own kind of codes of masculinity, 
it, it's very different. Well, and also this is again another sort of lesson for her to learn. Like, she, who have been the men in her life, and how have they performed masculinity? Yes. And now she's presented with this guy that doesn't quite fit the men she's known in her life. Yes. Uh, he's going to perform it a little bit differently, and now she's got to figure out, how do I navigate this guy? Yes. Uh, All the kind of rules she knows about manhood uh-huh. don't quite fit here. Right. Yes. And maybe that's one reason why he's harder to manipulate. Um, you know, she's learned these kind of more traditional rules of this is what men like and this is what men prefer. Um, but now she gets to this culture and everything she's trying uh-huh. uh, doesn't really land. So, I mean, there's not a lot within the city that reminds me of this, but I, I was feeling that this is a very Constantinople place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in a couple of ways. First is that you get this little memory from Danny where Cal Drogo says that he had always wished to conquer this city. Yeah. And famously, you know, Genghis Khan was able to conquer almost any city he set his eyes on except Constantinople. Mm. And so you've got that. You've almost got the sense that this, this city is almost impregnable. And then you've got the notion that it is a great and ancient city that bridges east and west. Mm-hmm. And so that yeah. could be a very Constantinople vibe. With the stuff within the city, I didn't necessarily feel like there's not a lot in inside the city that made me feel like, oh, this is an homage. But so and maybe, you know, maybe this city's on the decline, but don't tell them that. Right. It's. <laughs> don't tell them that they, they i think that's yeah. right yeah they you know even doxo says um danny makes a comment about um pre mm. how you know he is this this um kind of mystical um kind of wizard figure and doxos kind of laughs it off and says well they think they're powerful but really they're part of a dying order mm. and so one does very much get the sense that this is kind of a, a city that still makes this claim that they are the most advanced civilization, you know, that they are the greatest city in the world. And yet their traditions, their ideas, their systems, their customs seem very antiquated at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's both kind of a modern city and yet also very ancient and look where it's located. You know, it is kind of this way station. Mm -hmm. Um, I think internally you're right. The other thing that really struck me, I kept thinking of the hunger games, you know, the capital, Oh, yeah. Um, just how bizarrely people are dressed and how little awareness they seem to have of the outside world, how unconcerned they seem mm. to be with anything other than what's happening in the capital. And I, I really thought about that in terms of the people that she encounters. They often say to themselves, why would we ever leave? Everything we need is here. Yeah. Why would you ever leave? <laughs> Everything that you could possibly want or imagine right. is here. There is really no world outside well, and of they, Yeah, they're the center of the world. There's right. the center of the world. And, and so that yeah. lack of awareness, that lack of really interest, they are the most boring, insipid, <laughs> languid. That's why I laughed when you said the word languid. Uh-huh. That is such a fitting description for the people of this city. Yeah. They seem to be interesting when she first arrives, but really there's just nothing there. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing interesting at all. And how boring Doxos gets the further you get into his character. He says the same things again and again and again. Oh, my pretty flower. I mean, Mm -hmm. whatever he says to her, it's just the same empty 
meaningless words mm -hmm. that just kind of pour out of him like a reflex. Yeah. And, you know, from, from his perspective, she's a 15-year-old princess, right? Yes. So how, how else do you talk to a 15-year-old princess, right? <laughs> right. I think he probably sees her as pretty easy prey. Yes. Anyway. And he's probably quite surprised when he doesn't yeah. obtain the prize. Yeah, maybe so. Um, notable introductions. Uh, of course, we meet Karth for the first time. And I, I just thought I would read the, the description of Karth when she walks through. Because it is very different than in the show. Yes. Three thick walls encircled Karth, elaborately carved. The outer was red sandstone, 30 feet high and decorated with animals. Snakes slithering, kites flying, fish swimming, intermingled with wolves of the red waste, and then striped horses and monstrous elephants. The middle wall, 40 feet high, was a gray granite alive with scenes of war, the clash of swords, and the shield, and the spear, and the arrows in flight, heroes at battle, and babes being butchered, pyres of the dead. The innermost wall was 50 feet of black marble with carvings that made Danny blush. So, and then of course you've got the, you know, the carvings of uh, sexuality in, in the innermost wall. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting to kind of like those walls tell a story a bit. It's like the, the outer wall, those kinds of carvings of the natural world, you would all often see, uh, around temples in the ancient right. world. And I think that that tells us something like, uh, you know, this is sort of a garden of paradise place. Uh, it's all, yeah. The city's almost a temple. And then, yeah. of course, we get a little, <laughs> we get a little depiction of what it took to secure the city with all of the war and the bloodshed. And then, the innermost wall you would sometimes, uh, sometimes te temples, not every temple in the ancient world, involves sexually ecstatic experience. Yes. And so you almost get the sense that this is our Garden of Eden. This is our temple. And I thought that was a very interesting uh, way to say a lot about that city without telling us the entire history of the place. Yeah, I thought really long and hard about the walls. And the inscriptions and what they tell us, not just about Karth, but maybe what they're hinting at for Danny's trajectory. Ah, interesting. Um, obviously, threes are everywhere. Uh -huh. Danny even says in a later chapter, so many threes. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, you know, three, of course, is a, is a running theme throughout fantasy and sci-fi in particular. Um, but there are so many threes, especially when it comes to Danny's story. And so I was kind of thinking ahead to the three fires that she has to light, mm -hmm. um, you know, when she goes to the house of the undying, I know you're going to talk about that in a later pod, so I won't get too heavily into it, but it's interesting. One is for life. One is for death and one is to love. Mm -hmm. And I thought, so the animals kind of at the, at the creation, right. The creation story mm -hmm. of the animals being created and things very new and kind of raw closer to nature. And then of course the fire for death, the war scenes on the second, and then one to love, um, which kind of, you know, evokes the the scenes of of sexuality and pleasure mm -hmm, and all of that mm -hmm. in the third wall. Um, and you could really do that for a lot of the threes, you know, that Danny encounters, even the three treasons 
um, which I think really begin to shape um, her thinking about herself and who she can trust, who she doesn't trust. You know, the House of Undying clearly is a really important passage for her. Um, but I don't know if there's anything to that, but it's just interesting, the carvings on the wall, how mm-hmm. that so kind of closely corresponds to what Danny will have mm-hmm. to go through. You even think of the three men that her dragons are named for. Mm-hmm. You know, Regal is more of a lover than he is a fighter. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting to see how many threes would come up in her narrative in that way. Yeah. So often. And then this, you know, kind of the the three wise men who greet her, um, you know, when she yeah. <laughs> first enters Karth, they yeah. come to find her um, in the desert um, and how they each kind of tempt her in a way with different things. Right. Um, you know, as she's kind of wandering the wilderness, she's tempted with these three things. And, you know, you even mentioned this at the top of the pod. Can she trust them? How does she learn who she can trust? You know, even Quaith, who seems to be warning her and saying, beware, look beneath the surface. Uh-huh. You know, you need to get out. And when you do get out, this is where you need to go. And I, I thought it was interesting how she tells her, you have to go back to go forward. And we know that Danny's big mantra throughout the first book is, if I look back, I'm lost. Right. Interesting. So she's finally I, yeah, kind of learning that, that connection, but that's a good one. I do have to look, start looking back now to find some answers that will allow me to go forward. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, Quaith is almost tempting her with supernatural insight. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's something about that that you know, if if I could, if I had a sorceress on my side, maybe I would have a leg up. Yeah, uh, you know, Stannis has sort of decided to go this direction. Mm. Um, and that does bring up this much larger question about the role of prophecy, mm-hmm. not just for Danny, but really for the entire um, the entire set of books. You know, which characters lean into that? How does it shape their journey? Is it almost mm-hmm. like a self-fulfilling prophecy? Um, we certainly see that with Stannis. I was kind of curious what you think about the role of prophecy for Danny. And we know Cersei is very much driven. Well, and we're about to, yeah, we're about to roll right into the House of the Undying, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, it certainly is going to, and I honestly, I, I'm not sure whether Martin's world is deterministic. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if something is going to happen, there's no other way it could happen or Certain things are, um, you know, sort of a, a possible future. I do think that there's something about the incomplete knowledge of the future that everyone, mm-hmm. everyone who, everyone who says that they've got some kind of access to prophecy, none of those people can say it definitively and say it completely. There, it, yeah. There's something about these predictions and these promises that lack key bits of information. And then, of course, the human interpretation comes in, into question. And it's just good storytelling not to be able to, you know, chart that out, right? So, And and to see the characters in real time trying to puzzle out, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when they encounter these new experiences or these new people, trying to see whether they fit within that prophecy mm-hmm. And how choices are so often driven by that, sometimes tragically. Again, Stannis is a good example, and Cersei as well. So another introduction in this chapter is a sailor from the Summer Islands named uh, Kuhuru Mo. Yeah. And his his ship is called the Cinnamon Wind, and he brings news 
Oh, yes. We forgot to talk about this. That Robert Baratheon is dead. Mm. And the the text says something like, you know, the sun was setting on the city, but the sun was rising in her heart. Yes. That she's finally feeling like, okay, now is my time. I'm you know, Now there's a chance. We yeah. know that there's another, you know, 3,000 pages <laughs> <laughs> of her story before she gets to Westeros, but um, it's going to be a while. But she views this as, I mean, here's another sign that the yes. usurper is the, the the shadow of a man who I always thought that I was, you know, someone was going to have to conquer. He's conquered himself, and this weak son of his is on the throne. And the his dogs are fighting amongst themselves. Isn't this fantastic news? This is all yeah. all going my way. And of course, Jorah <laughs> has a different view of this, right? <laughs> it's climbing that ladder of chaos, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, who do you think is right? Because she says, this is perfect. Um, now they're fighting each other. I can swoop in. And Jorah says, actually, um, this is not opportune. Um and he, you know, makes the point later on, nothing will unite them. Nothing will bring them together like a so-called foreigner um, invading uh, their shores. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, what, what does he say? He says something like, you know, this one could defeat that one, but tell me who wins and I'll tell you what it means. Yes. And I think what he's saying is, we don't know whether this is good news or bad news until we find out who's on top. Right. And... He says something like, we still need ships and gold and armies <laughs> and alliances. And alliances. And she takes his hands and she looks in his eyes and she says, I know. And so I think that there's something about this that makes her feel like this guy thinks I'm a little girl. He thinks that I don't know that there's more to come. But. Give me this moment to celebrate. <laughs> I think in this case she's right. I, I don't know if he I I think that he's probably right to caution her, but I don't think that she's naive in thinking, well, we can just sail tomorrow. I don't think she's that naive either, but I was really struck with again this this distinction that I don't think she has quite made yet, which is she still is somewhat locked into the idea of of course they'll welcome me i'm daenerys Targaryen. yeah 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 and it remind does it remind you of the conversation that cersei has with with peter um at least in the show version where you know cersei says none of that matters power is power mm -hmm. and that's what people respond to and i think one of her greatest lessons during the karth passages is she really comes to that hard realization that it really doesn't matter what my name is. Mm -hmm. People will respond to power and money. There's that conversation they have about Illyrio. And she says, Illyrio will be loyal to me. And Jorah says, Illyrio was loyal to you because he got paid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why is Doxos giving her all of these compliments? He wants something from her. He knows that if they marry, he gets a dragon. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So she, th those kinds of ideals that she still very much, I think, clings to at the start of this book are really beginning to slip away as she goes through. She also has, and why wouldn't she? She has tremendous faith in her dragons. 
you know, right. she always makes a distinction between herself and Viserys by saying, he didn't have dragons. Mm-hmm. I have dragons. And she's not what wrong. What do I, I have? Mean, they don't. She's not wrong. I think that there's something about the idea that if I have dragons, the armies will come. And she's right. she's not wrong who about that. Who can defeat dragons? <laughs> right? Who, who doesn't want to be on the winning side of this, this kind of stuff? Do you think, and we'll wrap up on this, do you think that uh, Danny will have more Karth in her future? Like, do you think that her narrative will bring her back to Karth at some point? Mm. I don't know. I mean, right now um, she's sort of wandering in the in the Red Waste again. Right. And then she gets, she sort of encounters this massive Kalasar. Yeah, that's where we leave her, right? At the end yeah, of the last book. that's right. It's interesting. I mean, we do get a little glimpse of Doxos in one of the later books. Um he encounters her. Is it Marine that he comes to her? And I kind of lost track of his story, but I know they, they, they encounter one another again. So that's interesting that, that George would bring him back. So I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility, you know, whatsoever. It will be really interesting to see where her story goes um, in the winds of winter. I almost feel it. like, I, f- I feel like Quaith is too, interesting not to bring back into the story at some mm-hmm. point. And I don't know how, yeah. how that will happen. Um, do you, here's a even more interesting question. Do you think she'll get to a shy? I have never considered that possibility. I think, I think no. That's where Quaith keeps telling her to go. I, and the only reason I say that is because I think that George has said something about not doing any of the narrative in a shy. Hmm. Okay. So I, don't know, I might be making that up, but I have this. I I feel like I've got this memory of an interview he gave about that. Um, it just seems like a kind of a Chekhov's gun, doesn't it? Where Shaw <laughs> keeps coming up. So you kind of, as a reader, want some kind of fulfillment. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I mean, it just seems like that would be, you know, given kind of all the prophecy yeah. around Danny, her own connection to magic, the idea that did magic re-enter the world uh-huh. when her dragons hatched? It seems a perfect narrative I would be for her to go to a shy. I I would be really interested to see that. I would love to see a shy. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Fantastic. I don't think so. I think, I think he gave an interview. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So no, I, I I feel like maybe we see Karth again, or maybe that she just encounters Quay somewhere else in the world. Um, Yeah. Oh, now here's, Another question is Karth, if she re-encounters Karth, are they friend or foe? Right. I mean, she's a different Given person that now, right? Given that she basically burned down the house of yeah. dying, probably not friend. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could be that the the warlocks are gone, but there are other people in Karth that uh, she, she feels, I mean, I don't know. She could rule Karth if she wanted to. It probably wouldn't be that hard to conquer, <laughs> given the 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 uh, yeah. complacency yeah. <laughs> of the people. Yeah, three walls will not keep out dragons. No, no. Okay, well, thank you so much. Um, I I feel like this chapter could have. E- I think it's really easy to overlook this chapter. Um, it is, but I think that there's a lot that's being set up for Danny's approach to politics in this chapter. I just, I really wanted more Danny as a whole in Clash of Kings. She kind of. This is her second chapter, and and in my book, I'm like I'm 420 pages in, 
This is only her second POV in this book. Yeah, she only has five of them in this book. It's kind of nuts. It is. It's it's strange given how prominent she was in the first book. And then suddenly you get here and um, maybe it's because George thought, you know, wandering through the wilderness and going to Karth wouldn't be as uh-huh. interesting from a narrative. But I think it's super interesting. Um, I think the show kind of badly mishandled the Karth uh, episodes, but I think in the book, it's it's a really necessary passage. Thank you, Jan. Thanks, Anthony. Always a pleasure.